The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Welcome back, Ben. Welcome back to yourself. Hey, we're doing this during the day. We never do this during the day. It's always late at night and in, in, in the dark of night, we sneak off and do our host wraps. It, it's crazy. Daylight is coming through the windows and w- I know. And we have a great show today. We have the creative team behind the new movie, Rye Lane, which is coming to Sweet. Hulu on March 31st. So in the next two weeks, uh, you can prepare yourselves for Rye Lane, which is a, strap in, which is a lot of fun. I really enjoyed it, and, and you might awesome. as well. Yeah. So, Ben, close focus. Oh, we just had the Oscars. What are we talking about? Are we talking about the Oscars? We got to talk about the Oscars. How can we not talk about the Oscars? Because we every year, this is a four year tradition going all the way back to 2017. Mm. That's a significant chunk of the time we've been doing the show. We have the Oscar show with our friend Janelle Riley, who's an editor at Variety. Yeah. So this is, they, just, I would they, say, they know a little bit about movies over yeah, there. Yeah. You know what you're talking about. Janelle knows what she's talking about. I'm kind of a dumb fuck. But I, uh, we were all wrong. We, uh, all of us were wrong. When it came to our, cinematography, we were wrong. Yeah. Completely wrong. You and Janelle went with what I would say was the extremely conventional, even obvious wisdom, which was that Mandy Walker, who won the ASC award and would have made history being the first woman ever to win Best Cinematography, the two of you put your money down on her and always the contrarian. Mm-hmm. I put my money down on Darius Kanji, whose work I have loved for decades, who's one of the greats of cinematography. And then who won the Oscar statue? Yeah, James Friend. James Friend, who won for All Quiet on the Western Front, which is... Gorgeous, gorgeous film. Very popular, totally deserved. But because, you yeah. know, the Academy is made up of, uh, you know, uh, uh, well... Old and, people. Yes. It's made up of old people. It's increasingly getting more diverse, but it is a, a group predominantly of actors, former actors that are old and white, and I don't necessarily converse with all of them. And uh, my sort of demographic of people who work in, uh, you know, below the line and... Uh, technical sides basically had Mandy Walker pegged and you know the ASC went that way but yeah the, the- yeah and and I didn't realize this at the time but when we were talking to Janelle I was like could the ASC awards influence the Oscars or had the Oscar winner already been picked and we were interviewing her not a week before the Academy Awards and she said that it the Oscar had not been decided at that time. That's true. There are some people who vote very early, and that may have happened too. There was, could have been some people who voted early who were not influenced then by the ASC, who weren't waiting for that, mm-hmm. who just made up their mind and said, I'm I'm voting this way. And I don't know if that's that's what happened in this case, but I was wrong. I admit it. I, I couldn't predict the future. I'm not part of any sort of accounting company. I had no, no crystal ball. I, I didn't have the Vegas odds, but I got it wrong. I would say that like my Oscar predictions were almost spot on, except that. And uh, and and it was a little surprising. Let's just agree, though, that everyone who was nominated deserved to be there in that category, particularly 100 percent. Everyone deserved to be there. And I would also say that three people who weren't nominated (laughs) deserved to be be there. there. And they were Larkin Seipel. We talked about this. Larkin Seipel for everything everywhere all at once. And I bet if he'd been nominated, he would have won because that movie swept. Yeah. And then Lena Sondgren for Babylon. Mm. And then Greg Fraser for The Batman. I just watched The Batman again the other night, and that movie is just breathtaking to look at some of 
the most amazing cinematography. None of these people are hurting for work. I don't I don't know that it would have changed the trajectory of any of those three men's lives. Uh, but all three of them, I think, deserve to be nominated as well. At least I'm not going to say who I would take out of the running because that would be super uncool. But I was a little shocked that those three didn't get nominated. But the thing about All Quiet on the Western Front is it's a great movie. It looks amazing. In my opinion, an amazing, very modern war movie. And the work is awesome. What I guess I look for is, and maybe I'm looking for the wrong thing, is kind of an inventiveness that I see in these movies that I'm bringing up. And I'm not saying that All Quiet on the Western Front did not have inventiveness. It's gorgeous. Mm. It's amazing. But also, All Quiet on the Western Front isn't like a water cooler movie that everyone's talking about. They are now because it won a bunch of Oscars. And maybe that's what it needed. You know, it's got a great cast, looks great, great direction, no complaints, deserves all the nominations it got. I just was kind of surprised because the movies that I'm talking about were kind of pushing envelopes that you don't see pushed. But maybe that's not what the Academy wanted this year, or that maybe the people who were voting for cinematography wanted something that executed this kind of movie in a very modern, state-of-the-art, fresh way but wasn't surreal, absurdist, you know, busy, was just doing its job perfectly. And you see nominations like that all the time, every year, and often they win. Yeah. You know, and also if you want a revolution in cinematography, Russell Carpenter should be on that list because he kind of exploded the idea of cinematography into a thousand parts and then refined all those parts and then put them all back together. I mean, like, that's not easy to do. Agreed. Well, Ben, I think we should get to the interview with the team from Rye Lane, which is director Rain Allen Miller and cinematographer Olin Collardy. Here we go. The Cinematography Podcast Interview. I'm very pleased to be joined right now by part of the creative team for the new movie Rye Lane, which is director Rain Allen Miller and cinematographer Olin Collardy. Uh, thank you so much for being on the Cinematography Podcast. Well, thanks for having us. Thank you very much. Your movie just premiered at the 2023 Sundance Film Festival, and I usually ask people to give a just a, a real quick synopsis about what the movie's about. So why don't you take it away? Tell us about Rye Lane. Rye Lane is a comedy about two people that kind of meet at the wrong time, but they're pretty perfect for each other. I think that's a wonderful synopsis, and I don't think that you should give people too much information because on surface it feels like a romantic comedy, but I'll tell you what your synopsis didn't give them is just how charming this movie is from beginning to end. It is so charming. I've smiled and laughed so much through this thing from beginning to end. I I really, really enjoyed it. And I think a a lot of it has to do with the charisma of of your cast and the performances that you get out of them. Can you talk a little bit about trying to create this uh, and giving nothing away here? A little bit of whimsy that exists sort of in the in the flashbacks and juxtaposing what's happening and sort of like the real time telling of the story versus flashbacks and other fun moments that you get to really play with. I think one of the biggest things for me as a as a director is to combine great performance and story with beautiful frames and beautiful worlds. Like I love world building. And for me, it was really important for the film to be funny and entertaining. But why not it also look beautiful and be, you know, juicy the entire time? So, yeah, I think that was sort of the ambition. And thank you for for pointing it out, because that was the goal for us to kind of combine those two things really well. Well, mission accomplished. So, Rain, this is your first feature film. uh, And Mm -hmm. wow, there's a lot going on in this movie. Uh, Olan, this is your first 
feature film as a cinematographer. Right. Sounds like there's a lot of firsts here. What was it like? Because, you know, quite often uh, DPs are usually, you know, this grizzled old character who has to kind of like step in and help first time directors. But when you're both uh, first here, how does that process go? How do you guys support each other through making this movie? I think it was really important to work with somebody that had a fresh take on the film because I wanted it to feel like, you know, the way somebody like Spike Lee works, you know, obviously our film is set in London and it's really different. But what inspires me and I think Olan too about Spike Lee is Spike Lee's New York is Spike Lee's New York. And that means that we don't have to, I don't, I don't need to work with like a DP that's done 8,000 films. I know Olan's going to nail it. Olan knows South London. I think he's the most talented DP in the world. I also felt the same way about my production designer, Anna Rhodes, costume designer, makeup artist, like all the people that I work with, I think are the best. And I'm fully confident in them and I'm fully confident in myself. So that decision wasn't hard for me. I'd like to bring Olan into this uh, conversation here because you have some very stylized looks, especially when you get to play with these sort of like whimsical flashback moments and tellings of the story. And I'm thinking very clearly of moments that you have too. like, I, I know this is maybe a little lowbrow and I'm giving nothing away, but there's a scene that happens at some urinals, which then uh, I watched all the way through <laughs> the end of the credits to have that post credit shot, which I loved. But can you talk about just sort of like striking that balance between the real world and the hyper stylized world where things are being told in recollection and may not be exactly how they happened, but how the audience is going to experience them. Oh, thanks. Um, thanks, Julia. Um, I think for me, um, you know, the starting point is kind of Rain's brain. Um, I think she is the metronome for the whole film. And I remember coming on board the project, I was familiar with um, Rain's work, um, her commercial work. And I think one thing I really liked about her work is she brings a very beautiful and a big sandbox to play in. So from a cinematographer's perspective, it was a big dream for me, you know, it was, it was a privilege to be able to do the job, um, you know, do it well and do justice to it. Um, in terms of the look, I think one of our mission statements was to ensure that the camera is always in the right place. And uh, for Rain, it's all about, is it funny? So when we set up a shot, the question is, does this look funny? Like, you know, it can be beautiful, but if it's not funny, then it's not functional. So um, it became a lot easier for us to kind of like work in a lot faster the more we go into the film, because I knew, you know, the question is, is it funny? And there was a funny lens, actually two funny lenses. <laughs> so, um, you know, that was an incredibly oh, wide lens, which you're... <laughs> Which I'm guessing is some sort of uh, vintage anamorphic yes, of some yes, sort of flavor. Yes. I got to say that every time I saw that shot too, I couldn't tell if you were possibly doing a maybe slightly less extreme version of Robbie Ryan's like scrolling shots out of the favorite. It definitely felt reminiscent to me, but mm. uh, but in a more contained way. I, I loved that personally. I thought it was a lot of fun, those shots. And every time they came up, I was like, all right, we got some traveling. Now we, we got some. What, 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 yeah. was, what was the intention behind that uh, that super wide angle anamorphic piece? The motivation was largely, um, you know, Rain loves space. And, you know, the film also is, um, I'd like to think, um, some kind of love story to South London. So it was important for us to use a device, a lens, which allows us to see the world in which these characters are um, these characters are in. So it was, a, it was a way to reimagine South London by giving it a slightly juicy twist, mm -hmm. as opposed to what real life would feel like. So yeah, it was a, it was a delicate balance between striking the surreal and also making the film 
grounded because there's a lot to play with in the film. You know, the wardrobe is, you know, great, eccentric. So I think it was a fine balance between, you know, everyone going crazy. And, you know, I think one of my job was, you know, to always try and bring things back visually so it doesn't fly off into a crazy world. I think to add to the wide lens thing, like Olan and I had so many great conversations about what we're actually saying mm. with these lenses. Like they look amazing. But one of the things that I was really obsessed with was the idea that obviously, I guess the 50 mil lens is like closest to the eye. Mm. But the way that I wanted to see this film was like, how do you see in your mind? And how you see in your mind is like, Olan and I are having a conversation here, but we can still see that thing in the background. Yeah. You know, we can still feel it happening. And that might be like a cowboy dancing, you know, <laughs> and that's happening, but we're still in this deep conversation. Yeah. So that wide lens kind of like really gave us that, like we could be focused on these two incredible characters, but we were still aware of the fact that like all this bonkersness is going on. And that is South London. Like you'll yeah. absolutely have a, a normal conversation with a flat white chatting. And then you've just got this woman dressed in bright pink pushing a pram with a dog in it. That's South London, you know? And it was so important for us to show that. And the same kind of went with the close-ups, you know, super wide close-ups that felt funny. But the, you know, sorry to nerd out, but the other thing like Olan and I were talking about is the TV show Peep Show did this thing where they went close and it was this amazing thing where you weren't looking down the lens, you were looking just above it. And it means that you're in someone's head, but you're not breaking the fourth yeah. wall. And so Olan and I would spend ages finding that perfect eyeline that did that. Well, Olan more so, actually. You know, he'd sit there with this little green sticker going, look there, look there, <laughs> look there. And it was like, we got it. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> it was really fun. I hoped you guys had fun making this movie because it was it was really fun as an audience member. And I have to actually bring up maybe one of my favorite scenes, possibly my favorite scene in the whole movie, which is the backyard party sequence. The backyard party sequence with the impromptu Terrence Trent Darby karaoke and just everything that's sort of like going on in the family fish out of water drama that's taking place in there. And it feels like this really nice sort of little breather that we have to. The pace of the movie is fairly frenetic at some points and there's a lot coming at you. But then we get to this party sequence and it kind of is, it's almost like you could get to take a breath, but there's so much cringe and awkwardness going on through there. And also just like a little bit of, of absurdity. It's so much fun. Can, now, both of you look way too young to know Terrence Trent Darby. So is that in the script? Where does that come from? Where does, where does this moment in the movie, which then <laughs> it harkens back to later? How, how does this all come about? What's your intention for how you handled this particular little sequence, which also involves like giving nothing away, but, you know, searching through drawers of knickers and and all that stuff uh to answer the terence trent darby thing it's maybe we are too young but like that song is so perfect like do you, you must know I wasn't right? yeah I was until I'm the not... film yeah yeah we no i think that song i mean it's it was really key to have a track that was like sincere like i'm obsessed with things being funny because they're really sincere mm. i actually prefer that to sort of like outwardly like ha ha for comedy and that and and what we wanted was a song that was dead serious and performed dead serious 
but just so bloody awkward. Um, <laughs> and Terence Trent Darby. Uh, well, yeah. for me, it was perfect. And Terence Trent Darby doesn't get a lot of love. He almost comes up as like a, like as a punchline once or twice. Is like you know remembering the eighties. But Aww. I was a huge fan. So uh, and still to this day. So but when that comes up, I was like, wow. I felt like you were making it for people of my generation, which uh, which which was fun. Even though I know that it's not. It's for everybody. Uh, okay, so talk about the scene, though, too, because there's a little bit of a pacing shift that happens here, too. There's a lot of, like, move, 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 move. We're kind of, you know, the story's coming along. We get to the scene, and it's like, it's almost like a break. And it's not a break because there's all this extra stuff going on. But tell me about the pacing a little bit. Well, I mean, I guess pacing, like, nailed by our amazing editor, Victoria Boydell. But I think it was a break in the film, and I think we went into it kind of seeing it like that, <laughs> even though it's, like quite fast paced. I do think it feels like a moment to just chill. No, I mean, no, you're right, because it was, how many pages was it? Like, it's a lot. I mean, I mean, yeah, it was a lot. And, you know, I think the temptation was to, you know, throw two cameras at it to just hose down the coverage. But um, I think we decided to be very intentional about how we cover that scene. And I think that's why you feel that in the pacing that it felt a lot slower to, you know, the, the preceding scenes that felt more go, 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 go. Um, so I don't know whether that was intentional on your side, but yeah, I think. Yeah, I think there was actually a really major moment when we were making the film that I just would love to point out, which was like so special between Olan and I. And it was that at one point in the schedule, it was written that we were going to have two cameras on a day when mm. there was a lot of pages. Mm. And I just wasn't happy with the way it was looking. This was specifically the um, the restaurant scene. Mm. I hate over-the-shoulder shots. Like, passion and hate. Passion and hate <laughs> for over-the-shoulder shots. And mm. it was really, like, Olan, like, has this thing. We just laugh about it so much because Olan always says, like, do you want to do an over-the-shoulder shot? As a joke, because I hate this. <laughs> so um, but at that point, we'd had two cameras scheduled in, and we, Olan and I both were like, hang on a minute, we hate this? Like, what are we doing? And I think maybe even in the lunch break, we walked together and Olan just said to me, like, I've just realised, like, the film that you want to make isn't a two-camera thing. Like, you are not a two-camera director. And from then, we just, we were just like, no to two cameras. And it was great. It was like, this is, you know, we want to shoot a film that is, yes, story-focused, but it does need to be authored and it does need to look... A certain way and like having Olan make me realize that was like such an amazing moment and why I adore him as a person outside of like him being such a great talented cinematographer you know it's directing is quite lonely and it's like somebody coming up to you and almost going you know what you do realize that you're a one camera director like right. you hate over the shoulder shots it compromises two cameras compromises everything and you want your frames to look great and to be specific so well, let's kill the second camera yeah. Rain, that's really high praise for your collaborator. And this is an audio podcast, so no one can see uh, Olan's big smile that he's had through, through all this. But like, but, uh, and Olan, actually, I want to I want to get into this a little bit here. There's a, a beautiful, rich, saturated color palette. There's a really dynamic look to this movie. Can you talk a little bit about the color choices? I mean, like, I know that some of it's going to be set design. You have these incredible, incredible production design going on here. But let's talk about your choices with like lighting and color in particular of how you wanted to, to tell the story. No, thanks for noticing that. Um, thing for me, I've always been someone who loves contrast and saturation. And I think that's partly due to 
my background and my upbringing. I grew up in um, Nigeria, and I think you know, um, you know, the sun feels differently over there. You know, their houses have different colors. You know, people wear very bright colors. So when I moved to the UK as a teenager, you know, I've always had that longing for those kind of colors and, you know, richness in, in imagery. So much so when I watch British films, you know, a few years ago, yeah, they were always devoid of um, color. And um, it was always this kind of like low contrast look, you know, which, you know, that the sun informs that, you know, it's quite overcast in the UK. So my style has always been influenced by loving that contrast and that color. So when this film um, came along, especially with the director who loved loves color i mean rain's thing is no white walls um, <laughs> there's always a line item item to paint walls non-black so working with a director who shares that passion for color just felt like a dream collaboration rather than me being on a project where i'm the one who's fighting to have color in the shot and you know everyone's rolling their eyes the producer saying no the <laughs> production designer is saying no would have so yeah it was for me it was a dream collaboration so it felt natural I think what um, Spike Lee did and do the right thing, I mean, when you think about that film, is so rich in colour. I wanted people to remember, you know, South, not South London or people who haven't been to South, South London to have that kind of vision of what, you know, London feels like. It's not dreary, it's not boring, it's vivacious, it's vi vibrant. So I think for me it was important to be able to have that splash of colour and vibrancy, not only in the imagery, but also in, you know, the, the skin tones we're shooting as well. Yeah. And let me tell you, now that you draw that connection with uh, Ernie Dickerson from Do the Right Thing, it's like, it, yeah, I absolutely see it. It's a wonderful use of color. And I think that uh, that comes through with what you're doing. I, I want to ask you that. Uh, OK, so the movie starts off and there's the 20th Century Fox logo. I know that Disney is, you know, the parent company now and heavily involved. And I hear it's going to Hulu. Congratulations. But this sounds very uh, complicated to me. Was this a Fox production? Did it get acquired? I, I don't know the story. How, how did this come to be? Well, it was developed. So I got sent the script and I worked with the writers for about two years alongside the BBC. So BBC film. And we got it to a great place. And then BFI came in and Fox Searchlight came in, which is kind of bonkers. You're right. Like it's an, it is an indie film, but Searchlight are, you know, you've got that dum -dum 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 at the beginning. Yeah. <laughs> Honestly, it's so like, oh my gosh, we made a film. Like having that at the beginning. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, so BFI gets Fox Searchlight. And when does this premiere? This is, I, I, I mean, you guys have distribution. It's going to be on Hulu. Do you know when it's going to go live so everyone can watch it? We have our UK premiere mid-March, and then it's released in cinemas in the UK end of March, and then Hulu. That's all really, really quick. And that's really exciting. So many people are going to get to see your work in such a short time from the premiere. Quite often, movies that are on the festival circuit, they kind of stay on the festival circuit for a long time, even if they get a distribution deal. You're coming into the festival with the distribution deal. That means you get to like have fun at Sundance. A lot of people, it's like, you know, it's nerves and meetings and racing around and Q&As and interviews just like this. But since the pressure is off, now you guys get to like hang out or have fun. Do you, I mean, is this your first Sundance? Uh, how is this jiving for you? How's it going? Pretty mad, right? I got a video of Olan boogieing the other day. You know, it's been great having a little boogie. <laughs> It feels mad. I mean, it's so funny because Olan and I, I think probably on the first day of shooting, we were like, we want this to go to Sundance, you know? Mm. And like, th that was the film that we wanted to find. I think Olan like made a joke. 
it was the best thing ever telling Olan that we were we went for lunch and I was like Olan we got into Sundance and he walked out <laughs> <laughs> he just like got just, up like, and left ran out of <laughs> Um, it was so nice. I wish I filmed it, but yes, yeah, it's, it's really nice. I, there's been quite a lot of. Um, I actually, sadly haven't been able to see any films because there's a lot of press. But it's still, it, yeah. I think it's probably a lot more relaxed for us because we have the distribution in place. Yeah, and what a wonderful thing. Uh, do you guys have an official website for the movie? Is there an official Instagram or anything like that you guys would like to plug? So if people want to track it or follow it more closely, they, they can. It, we've just we've just got it, and it's Rye Lane Movie on Instagram. Rye Lane Movie on Instagram. All right. Well, Rain, Olan, uh, it was so much fun. I want to thank you guys for being on the show, and I can't wait to see what you do next. Thank you very much, Julia. We appreciate Thanks it. Thanks for having us. So that was the creative team from uh, Rye Lane. Thanks so much for being on the show. Uh, I can't wait to see what you guys do next. And now, short ends. So Ben, it's short end time. What is your obsession this week? What are you all about? What's going on with you? Okay, so I want to start by saying like a lot of times I get turned off by film essay YouTube. I don't know if there's a real name for it, but there are a lot of people who put up a lot of videos on YouTube and presumably Mm. make some money doing it. And it's basically just breakdowns of films and film essays. But I stumbled across one that just kept getting served up to me. I don't know the people who run this channel. I don't know anything about them. It's called Standard Story Company. And it even has the YouTubiest, schlockiest title for the video itself. Why Great Filmmakers Love, all caps, These Two Transitions. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> this sounds hokey. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So I went to watch it, and it's really, really freaking good. Oh, wow. Okay. So it's the dude from Standard Story Company. I'm not sure what his name is. And he's talking about two transitions. One is the match cut, which we've all seen the, the yeah, match cut. So he's like talking about like uh, close up on Lawrence of Arabia, lighting a match, wide shot, cut to the wide shot of the desert with the sun coming up. And you th- you know, for a second, your brain thinks it's the match head or somebody goes to shake hands, camera left. And the hand that gets received camera right is in a different scene and it's a different character. You know, like the, basically it's a gimmicky but often useful transition. Then the other one is a little deeper, and it's got me watching movies in a way that I never watch. And he's saying cutting on contrast. So mm-hmm. cutting on contrast is cutting from one scene to the next. So it would be like cutting on all of frame right is black and there's and everything's on frame left. And then you cut to the other side and it's the flip. Or cutting from an extreme close-up to an extreme wide shot, which actually that Lawrence of Arabia shot is, is that. Or cutting from somebody moving to somebody still or whatever, like basically finding the contrast between the two scenes and emphasizing that in the way that you cut from one to the other. And as I said earlier, I was watching uh, The Batman shot by Greg Fraser, and I was sort of starting to pay attention to that. And it's hard to do because you're like immersed in the story and you're like, what's the last shot of the scene and the first shot of the next scene? You're always thinking about it. So I may be saving you the time, although it's a perfectly cromulent video to check out on, on YouTube. But I thought the guy who does this, his analysis of it was really interesting. And I recommend it to someone who's like going into it's it's the kind of thing he's talking about. It's like you don't notice it as a film viewer when you're watching it. And also to a degree, sometimes these things are out of your control. You know, it's like, okay, we're going to shoot the scene. The sun's going down. We got to get this basic coverage out before we lose the light. And you're not thinking I'm going to end on an extreme close up. It's like you only have enough HMI light to make that extreme close up to get yourself out of there. And the next scene happens to have a wide shot that is unintentional. 
And so much of the way a movie gets cut together is maybe not something that was figured out in pre-production because if you do that too much, it can just suck all the spontaneity out of the entire film anyway. But uh, it is an interesting thing. And um, the project that I worked on recently, the DP who shot it, she put together a spreadsheet that was like about every scene and it was like the emotions that you're trying to hit and the shots you're trying to get and everything. And I feel like I would add another column to that, which would be transition and just go through when you're making your, when you're doing whatever your prep is and just think about each scene. And some scenes maybe don't need a transition, but like think about, okay, what is the tone of this scene that we're going into the next scene? Or what is the, how has the conflict changed between these two things? And how can I emphasize that or de-emphasize that? Or what's the point of the transition here? And I think if more filmmakers did that, uh, I don't know. It's not like 100% of that is going to trickle down to the audience, but I feel like every little corner and aspect of it that we can think about before we go into production, some of that will trickle through into the end product. Yeah. It sounds really cool. I'll, I'll check it out. I'm curious now. I, I got to say, I, I think my thought process is similar to yours, that I really don't need a film school 101 essay on every single concept or technique that sure. uh, YouTube or decides to, to feed to me. But it's true. Every once in a while, something comes through that's really quite clever. And cutting on contrast, there is a real place for that. I'm not necessarily was conscious of thinking of it before you mentioned it here. But yeah, I think people do that all the time where they go like, oh, okay, it's a, you know, look, I, I think the most obvious one is transitions from dark areas and light areas. I, I think yeah. people, you know, someone going into a closet or a close up on a door or whatever it is, and then all of a sudden the reverse shot is something similar. And I'm pretty confident that there is some color grading that's going on sometimes to match those shots better when they come out because they want it to have a, a more, you know, the yeah. seamless feel. Or to hit you so. with more conscious. Well, and, and it made me think of a director that I edited a project for Jillian Armanante, who's also a very prolific actor, but she's an excellent, excellent director. And I edited a project for her over the pandemic, so it was all remote. But one thing that she, she didn't do it too much because she didn't want to water down the effect of it, but she was like, let's go from this extreme close-up to a wide shot or from a wide shot, bang, into an extreme close-up. And she's like, nothing will get your audience's attention better than that. And I feel like if nothing else, maybe I think that if you think, okay, what is the difference between these two scenes? Why does this scene follow that scene? How can I emphasize the difference of the world of each of these scenes or draw a parallel to the world of each of these scenes, which I think like the match cut is sort of saying like we're in the same world and the contrast cut is saying something's very different here. So it can be from, you know, again, from stillness to moving. It can be from wide to close. It can be from day to night. It can be, you know, any number of things. Some of it's just going to be baked in in the writing. But I think it's it would be a worthy exercise if you're making a film, a short a feature, whatever it was, to kind of just go through and just track that. I bet you would find probably two or three moments in the movie where the drama or the comedy, the whatever, could be further emphasized by thinking about how you're transitioning from one thing to the next, again, without being like, hey, look at me, Ma, I, I did a cool thing. I mean, there are movies that do that really well. Like I think about Joe Carnahan's Smoke and Aces. That movie, like mm -hmm. every mm -hmm. scene has a weird match cut that goes from out into the next one. And it's kind of one of the many gimmicks of that movie. And I think it's a really fun movie. Nothing wrong with that. Good transitions are wonderful. Good transitions make the story uh, zing along. It zings along and uh, it, it might give you more information. It might not. But at the very least, when a movie has a, the proper flow like that, I know I as an audience member, I'm way more engaged. I'm way more engaged in what's happening. As an editor, too, because I do a lot of editing, the last thing I reach for ever in the world is the cross dissolve, even though sometimes mm. it's the most appropriate thing and there are plenty can't of great solve ones. it, dissolve it. That's exactly where <laughs> I was going. Yeah, the old, the old editing uh, axiom, if you can't solve it, dissolve it. And I, whenever I'm watching a movie or a TV show and they cross dissolve, I'm like, that mm. editor, that editor gave up. 
lazy. I, I feel bad for that editor. <laughs> that editor didn't have what he or she needed to get from that scene into the next scene. Although there are obviously amazing cross dissolves in lots of movies. And I think that there's a good reason to use them. Sometimes I just avoid them. Anyway, enough yeah. about this. Ilya, what is your short end? Well, I have to go back to my old stomping grounds of technology for my short end this uh, week. Uh, I just got back from New York, basically uh, last night. New York uh, was playing host to Cinegear, and they've done Cinegear in the past. And Cinegear in New York is an offshoot of the Los Angeles Cinegear, which is a very large event that used to take place at Paramount. During COVID, it got moved to the Los Angeles Convention Center. And supposedly this year, it'll be back at Paramount. And it's probably the best event for true cinema equipment, equipment for the motion picture industry. Better than NAB? Yes. Yeah. NAB has got a good selection of international folks and a good selection of sort of like bizarre, smaller Chinese companies and international companies that you probably won't see elsewhere. But if you're not specifically looking for that, Cinegear always has all of the major players. And I would say in the US, it's unrivaled. In Europe, the closest would be Cinec, which only takes place every other year in Germany. But there's not too many shows that are really dedicated just to cinema technology and and not broadcast and not, you know, uh, satellite uplinks and a whole bunch of other things. IBC and some other big shows feel more like NAB, but Cinegear is like the place for cinema stuff. So anyway, they, they did Cinegear New York this year in a different place in Brooklyn called Industry City which is essentially a bunch of old warehouses that have been converted into sort of like uh, hip spaces for various uh, things. So one of them is an event space, which is uh, mostly cleared out. And it's a small fraction of the size of Cinegear Los Angeles. But for coming out of this pandemic and compared to other trade shows have been really well attended and a pretty high level of people who went to it. That, one of the things that people who who go to these trade shows or exhibited the trade shows, most of the manufacturers, I, I talk to a lot of them uh, because my company represents them and we meet up and we, the opinions vary quite a bit, but a lot of the reason that these companies are attending trade shows is just to remind the market that they still exist, that we're still here and that, you know, things are still going on with us. So Cinegear New York was a perfect example of that. There was a lot of companies there, big companies, small companies. They didn't all get enormous booths. It wasn't like, hey, we got to spend a ton of money and we got to you know make a big splash here when we're introducing new product. No, it was really like, hey, we're still here. Come by. Remember us. Uh, have good interpersonal human relationships. And and that's what I did. I went around. I, I talked to a bunch of people and, uh, you know, basically I always get treated quite well at these events because I, because, I am because mo- you are you're a seller because you're going to buy I, I'm a customer yeah, yeah because you know I go to them and I say like hey you know look look how much money we, we spent with you this year and uh, how much how many checks and wire transfers I gave you so that's always nice they're always happy to see me and I, I have to say though it was a really good turnout in an unexpected way. And this is what I mean. The people who were there, uh, the industry people, people like me and like the manufacturers, the people who actually came to the show were really of the mindset of like the industry is uh, reopened fully. Trade shows are back and we are looking to do serious and significant business and we want to see what's out there. And there were some smaller companies, some companies that I wasn't familiar with. So that was interesting and nice that they they kind of popped up there. Some more established companies were showing all of their stuff. And I actually did a video on, I featured one, I did a, a little Instagram vertical video. You know how I feel about vertical video, but oh, I gotta say- man, I, you're, you're not a fan of that stuff. I am not, but I now, I think I've made my peace with it in the mindset of that this is very specifically something that is supposed to not exist in another format. It is something that is might be um, next ephemeral. stop. Next stop, TikTok, man. You're going to be on TikTok. Oh. 
you know, uh, I'm, I'm I, disappointed I, in you. You can you can be disappointed in me, but I fully believe that this is a temporary sort of thing that uh, exists for a short period of time, which is supposed to market, promote, or educate and inform. And I gotta say, the the little video that I did that was vertical, really, people seem to like and got oh, good comments. No. And got, I know it's kind of oh, crazy. You're so going down this, the rabbit hole now. This this might this might be the beginning of cut, of, of cut something, to so. Ilya doing sea shanties on TikTok because apparently it's two years ago, and that's my sea only shanty. point of reference for TikTok. <laughs> <laughs> and dances, dance moves. Mm. It's going to be me like roller skate dancing 70s style and uh, sea shanties. It'll I can be, see it. It'll be great. Anyway, so trade shows for this industry, at least, are certainly back and people are uh, looking for gear and that this sort of time frame that we're in right now, I think is sort of like the beginning of something new. And despite people talking about fears of writer's strike and fears of recession. Facebook laid off another 10,000 people today. I will tell you this industry is looking to get work done and they're looking to do stuff and they have plans for 2023 and the future. And uh, I don't see sort of the external forces really stopping people right now. I really feel like this is a, uh, this is a thing it's going forward and that's kind of a big deal for a lot of people doing production. I met several people who work in house, meaning that like they are the in-house production arm for companies and those companies are going to need to produce and create stuff and we have some clients for some some really great companies that uh that do that sort of thing like um sandwich video and yeti and things like that these these uh, bigger companies that are either producing their own in-house content or content for other people or you know just super super high level stuff that looks like uh looks like it would be on the super bowl but you know they're doing it in-house like every couple of weeks or every month or whatever it might be Wow. Well, that's cool. Is NAB back in April this year or uh, when is NAB going to be? It is. It's. I think it starts on tax day. I think it starts around April 15th and I think it ends on the 19th. And yes, I, I will be there. I did. I went for one day last year just to yeah. see what the, what the hell. But uh, this year I'm going to go and I think that we're actually going to shoot something interesting too while we're there. So, uh, so yeah. yeah, we'll, Man, we'll probably I, post a real I, thing about it. And I haven't been to NAB in like, it's probably been at least seven years. Wow. Maybe more. Yeah. I haven't been there in yeah. so long. I should go. Well, you could you could come if you want. Want to check it out? Eh, let me see if I can uh, sneak away for a day. Do the same as you. Like I, I remember one year that I went. I literally drove up in the morning and drove back at night. Like I was. I didn't get a hotel room. I didn't do anything. That's a long day. That's a long day. It's a long yeah. day, but you know, from L.A. to half Vegas, of it was half was spent driving. So. Well, you can do L.A. to Vegas in three hours. Not legally. Well, you take the Pear Blossom Highway. <laughs> Still not legally. <laughs> that's a yeah that's a three and a half hours at best if you're or if you're even close to obeying a speed limit anyway so. nobody cares how long it takes to drive anywhere <laughs> that's uh, true. i'm interested to see how nab this year goes interested to see how cinegear in la which is usually right on the heels of nab it's usually like a month later right it's about it's about a month and a half later yeah it's uh first week of june i think it is again this year and we're gonna i'll pre-announce it now right that was now. My, Cine- my next question you, you yeah. stole it go for it oh Cinebeer, uh, Cinebeer will be happening. Cinebeer is our after party for Cinegear. Happens the day after Cinegear. And holy crap, uh, we've had a couple of events recently at Hot Rod that have both been super well attended. And uh, yeah, I think that Cinebeer will be our best uh, Cinebeer ever. So Are we going to do a live podcast again or no? Uh, you know, maybe we will. Maybe we'll find someone who wants to be on the show. That'd be a cool idea. All right, buddy. Well, let's go ahead and wrap up. Uh, where can people find you online? 
they can find me over at Hot Rod Cameras, hotrodcameras.com. You can get all of your uh, equipment needs taken care of over there. We have a fantastic team of highly technically competent people who can uh, answer your <laughs> questions and not make you feel like some sort of uh, weird number or faceless uh, person on the other side of the Internet. There's no phone tree at Hot Rod Cameras. You talk to a real person if you call. Well, and uh, you just helped a friend of mine build a studio like just uh, like a month or so ago, right? I, it's still in process, but yeah, we, we just give them a, a quote. So yeah, hopefully that'll all ha- happen here relatively soon. All right, cool. Uh, you can find me at benrock.com. You'll find all my social media links, LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, whatever. Say hi if you listen to the podcast. Uh, feel free to uh, give me any uh, gripes about the podcast there. And uh, before we go, Ilya, who should we thank this week? Let's thank Alana Cody. Alana Cody, putting Woo. all these shows together and making things happen. You can uh, track down Alana at growwithgreentree.com. Let's thank uh, Ben Katz, who's uh, editing all of our shows together. He is a fantastic editor, and Ben Katz is kicking all the butt. Make sure we sound uh, halfway decent here. H- hailing from the Pacific Northwest, correct? He is. He's in Washington. And let's also thank, as always, Kay's Alatrachi, who composed every scrap of music that you heard on the entire podcast. Uh, you can find him at musicbykays.com. Hire him to score your next 12 projects. 13th, you can go with someone else. <laughs> I think that's just about going to do us. Ben, uh, you want to take us out? Thanks for listening. This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening.